in blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Need a fix? Come get your kicks. We got tales by kooky chicks that time of the month, that time of the month. How's everyone doing tonight? You guys, like I said, it's cold in here. It's the first time ever that I think we've been in this room and it's cold. So, uh, like I said, keep breathing and let's warm it up. What? You can turn it up? I mean, it's not too cold. Who said that? You don't think so? Well, you got a beard. You, 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 you are warm back there. That's, that's, that's easy for you to say, sir. Anyways, um... Happy early Thanksgiving. I know we're a couple weeks away, but this is the first time that we've ever had a November show. Uh, we're really excited about it. We just, we had a really good year, and we thought, hey, let's try November and see if we can get some people to come out. So thanks for coming out, even though it's really cold and raining pretty hard, and it's supposed to snow later, because I, I taught last year for a brief period, and I learned how easily uh, Nashville shuts down when when there's even just a chance of snow. Uh, so thanks for coming out. I don't think the roads are supposed to freeze, so I think we'll be okay. Um, we've got a great lineup tonight. I've got two people published in the Vikeonic, which if you guys don't know is a column in the Nashville scene. It's great. It's a women's column. Um, it's usually funny, sometimes very serious. Uh, two of the writers from it tonight were both very funny. Uh, very excited to have them on the show. And one of them is a TTOTM. That's our abbreviation, that time of the month, alumni. So we're really excited to have her back. I've got my old boss here on stage, which is really fun. Um, and I was trying to I was trying to figure out what I should I wasn't gonna tell a story. We were gonna have a we had a we had a sixth writer who was gonna speak, but she was she's really sick right now, so she couldn't make it tonight, so I will be telling a story. But I was gonna I, I prepped this story because it's it's uh, the one I usually tell every year around Thanksgiving because it's Thanksgiving themed. Um, but so I was a I was a Boy Scout. I am an Eagle Scout. Um, wow. Probably hard hard to notice that. Uh, I worked at Victoria's Secret, so that might negate being an Eagle Scout. But um, anyways, when I was in scouting, this was like 1999. My mom became one of the assistant scoutmasters for my troop. Uh, she thought the leadership wasn't doing too well, so she would step in. And on the, we always had this November camp out. And so she decided that for the camp out, she was going to cook turkeys in a cardboard box. Um, you can actually do this. You can take a cardboard box, you line it with aluminum foil, then you put hot coals in it, and you throw the turkey in there. Um, it might be two cardboard boxes. You put one inside the other and insulate it. That's what you do with newspaper. Um, and so she did this at the camping trip. She also made apple pie and she made mashed potatoes. It was incredible. Like in the middle of the woods having a full-on Thanksgiving dinner. Um, really, really cool stuff. And so Thanksgiving that year was at our house and she was like, oh, I'm going to do the same thing for Thanksgiving. Um, she did one in the oven normally and then one she put out on our deck in the cardboard box. And uh, so everything was going fine. And she turned around and she looked out at the box and it was engulfed in flames on our deck. And so my dad, my dad ran out and uh, doused it with a fire extinguisher and we lost the turkey, uh, but we did not lose the deck. Um, and then my later that day, uh, my uncle came in and he's a firefighter and he came in full uh, firefighter gear because he heard. <laughs> Sorry to spit on you. But, Anyways, um, so yeah, my mom, we still, we don't, we don't let her live that one down. She almost burned down our house. Uh, what is it? Pride comes before the fall. I think the pride came before the fall, almost there. Hey, how you doing? I'm fantastic, my son. How are you? Pretty good. Come on in. Um, anyways, so that was my story. Um, why don't we start the real show and the real storytellers? The first one we have is Miss Jolene. What's her last name again? Vest. Vest. That's easy to remember. Why don't I remember that? I'm wearing one. Uh, Miss <laughs> Miss Jolene Vest. She is an instructor for a novel idea, which is a great organization here. I used to teach for them, and I thought I just saw Tama walk in, but I might be mistaken. 
Um, it, it's an after-school program for um, students in Metro National Public Schools. They're also doing it at um, a homeless shelter now, and essentially it teaches creative writing to students after school. Um, it's, a, it's a club. It's really fun. Um, I've never been more made fun of in my life than when I was teaching elementary students. Uh, they used to tell me that these boots that I have on were high heels, and they, they were really mean to me. Um, so it was, a, it was a learning curve for me as well, and I actually I gave up, and now I'm doing something else that I truly love, but I, I was there as well for a while, so Jolene, I know, I know your struggle. It's real. Um, Jolene's also an actor. She was recently in Listen to Your Mother at TPAC. Um, she's also a poet. So I'd like to welcome to her stage Miss Jolene Vest. I am the world's worst tooth fairy. Of all the magical beings that I've had to play, it's the tooth fairy costume that fits the worst. It's not exactly easy to find a slippery object the size of a kernel of shoe peg corn under the head of a child who sleeps like a cat. And then, what are you supposed to do with the tooth? You can't just throw it away. And there's no schedule for those little teeth falling out. No holiday to help you remember. Just, boom, there it is in your child's pudgy hand with its little stain of blood. And you just spent your last cash on a latte, and you've got a huge, uh, you have a huge uh, project in the morning that you have to get ready for, and then you have the wait. Don't they ever sleep? My, oh shit, moments are as numerous as my kids' baby teeth. Mom, the tooth fairy forgot my tooth again. The humiliating save several terrible minutes later. Oh, she just forgot the tooth. Didn't you see that little baggie of dimes and nickels under your other pillow? Where is the effing manual about how to be a good tooth fairy? I mean, where is magical beings for dummies? I've got questions, such as... What is the going rate for a front tooth these days? There's always this kid down the block who gets $20 for every tooth. And I hate these parents for raising the price of all of the teeth. Now, do you get more money for a molar? And I have another question. Does Santa always have to get credit for the biggest presents? I mean, come on and I need some techniques. No one tells you when you become a parent that you're going to spend about eight years with a host of secret identities and that you have to prepare to get really, really good at lying to your child. I mean, you kind of know this, but you know it's kind of vague and you think, well, it'll be fun. And then all of a sudden you find yourself answering questions like, is the Easter Bunny part chicken since it can lay eggs? You suddenly find yourself answering on the fly. I think I heard that the Easter Bunny's mom was part Blue Jay. And I know for a fact that his great-great-great-grandfather was the first Thanksgiving turkey. Mom, how can he lay eggs if he's a boy? Is he a hermaphrodite? Where did you learn that word? Mom, don't worry. It just means a boy girl. <laughs> Whoever created these beings did not make it easy. Take the most incongruous attributes you can think of. A 350-pound man who can shimmy down over a billion ch chimneys in, you know, seven hours. And that's what you're expected to explain with a straight face into beautiful, wide, trusting eyes. My fate as a terrible tooth fairy was sealed 
The first time my daughter came home from kindergarten with a tiny plastic treasure chest containing her precious front tooth. Let's get this straight. <clears throat> she had removed her tooth from her tiny mouth without incident. She had walked the tooth to the school office where the school secretary had placed the tooth into the treasure chest without incident. She had made it home to me on the school bus and held out the treasure chest to me, her face beaming with pride. And she had the cutest little gap in her face and her smile. And I take the chest and I, I had to open it. Had I learned nothing from Pandora, so <laughs> the chest was kind of hard to open. Work it, and all of a sudden the lid popped, and I saw this tiny white object fly and fall right into the crevice between the staircase and the wall. Nothing could get it out not a ruler, not the vacuum cleaner, it was gone, and nothing could console my daughter. I said, Honey, don't worry. The tooth fairy knows it wasn't your fault. She'll still come. But even at that tender age, she knew that the tooth fairy didn't roll like that. <laughs> the tooth is the essential commodity that the tooth fairy pays for. It was her only labor value as a six-year-old. <laughs> that night... I put the money under her pillow, but she never forgot that I lost her first tooth. Mostly we learn these secret identities by example and from the Hallmark Channel. <laughs> What's ironic and a little sad is I had the very best examples. My parents were masters of their secret identities. Santa always brought us the perfect presents, always the biggest. The Easter Bunny always gave us so much candy that it, it could induce a sugar coma year after year. My dad loved to give us special coins and special bills like uh, silver half dollars, whole dollar, you know, whole silver dollars, and that crazy two-dollar bill. When my mother died. We found secreted away in her jewelry box a little container with dozens of our baby teeth. My parents were masters and they did everything they could to keep the magic of our childhood hoods alive. Probably as a result of their hard work, my childhood was full of magic. I left letters to my guardian angel on my windowsill at night. I tried to conjure Aslan from the circular rug in the living room. I believed in fairies, and I saw Santa Claus eating the cookies and drinking the milk from the TV tray in my room when I was four years old. It was very dark. <laughs> and he was, the silhouette of him was a little bit skinny, but it was him. I wish someone had told me you get one shot at this magical world thing. You have to put your whole heart into it. You have to get it right the first time because there are no do-overs. To my children, I hope I didn't spoil the very real magic of the world by being so lame at being magical myself. Luckily, the best magic is yet to come, having wonderful children like you. But here's to my parents, my own magical beings. You ate all the cookies, you drank all the milk, and you never, ever missed a tooth.
Um, hey Bob, what was that? Who was that comedian that you posted that video of relating to the Tooth Fairy? Some guy in Nashville. He Bob posted this video of this comedian. And he tells this joke that in Alabama, the Tooth Fairy uh, is a little different there. They um, yeah, Dusty who? Dusty slave. Slay. He said he said that they they uh they what is he what is it they they take the money and give you teeth. Yeah, that's right. They take the money and give you teeth. The tooth fairy and all that. That's a good joke, that dusty guy. He said he didn't mind because they were always uh, you know they could always use some That's funny. Um, I, you know, Jolene, my mom's a dentist, so I texted her while I was, uh, while you were, while you were reading to see what the going rate for a front tooth was. Um, and she said back in, you know, when I was a kid, it was $20, but with inflation, it's 25 now. So, um, yeah, sorry for anyone, newer parents out there. So yeah, 25 bucks if you're looking for, uh, to, to give your child some money for their tooth. Oh, come on, that's... I got a quarter. A quarter? You can't buy anything for a quarter. I guess you can do. I guess you could park for like twenty minutes with a quarter. That's but you can't drive at that age, so it's not worthwhile for you, anyways. I don't know. Great story. Great story. You should submit that to Bionic. Have you submitted that yet? No, you should. That's great. <clears throat> Our next reader. Uh, came here last month for the first time, and then she boldly said, I have something I need to submit. And so I always like that. I always know it's going to be really good, and it is really good. Um, Mandy, I'm forgetting everyone's last name. Mandy Hanks, that's right. I'm Facebook friends with all these people, and I can't. Like, that's what Facebook's for, to help you remember these things. I like it. Um, she claims that she's a writer working undercover as a pediatric uh, cardiac sonographer. Um, and she also uh, just got published with the National Writers Meetup and is really fantastic. And this is the first time she's been on our stage, and I'm very excited to have her here. Let's give it up for Miss Mandy Haynes. home for widows and orphans of the South on the corner of St. Claude and Pauline. She was tucked in a hat that had been fashioned to some sort of basket, probably worn by the ladies of Storyville, with only the top of her little head picking out of the midnight blue velvet lining. I was butt naked, wrapped in a star newspaper. We were both quiet as mice awaiting our fate, stoic baby Joan of Arc, Glenda and I. I had a head full of black hair and olive complexion and no visible signs of stress, but Glenda's umbilical sight needed attention. Other than that, we were right as rain, soon to be thick as thieves, left behind on the steps of the orphanage on a humid summer night. Okay, that isn't true, but it's a true story that we made up to tell people when we met when we went on our trip to New Orleans, if they asked how we met. We visited the great city over Halloween, met an honest-to-God voodoo priest who blessed my most recent writing project, that's a true story, and were initiated into the religion by sacrificing a small child. Okay, that's not true. We became devil-worshipping lesbians. Definitely not true either, but it got a while out of my family. <laughs> Linda's not a fellow orphan, but my favorite, favorite first cousin on my mother's side. She's the daughter of my favorite, favorite Aunt Helen. Helen bakes the best cakes and tells the best ghost stories ever, because she has a ghost named Oscar, another true story, that lives in her little house off of Greenwood Avenue. I've had a run-in with her myself, and that's not a lie either. Whenever I find myself on the topic of such complex things as family matters, my Aunt Helen and my cousin Glenda are my go-to, my saving graces. Helen saved me many times over the years. One Thanksgiving, it was the year I was going through my third divorce, another true story. <laughs> I head out at her house and we ate coconut cake instead of the traditional turkey dinner. Helen made me promise not to tell anyone where I was because she knew if it got back to my mother, she'd be pissed. I was supposed to be at her house, receiving my share of turkey, cornbread dressing, and guilt, with plenty of leftovers to be taken home to last, like, for two years or more. <laughs> I didn't tell, because I didn't want to share Helen with anybody, or her homemade coconut cake. Glenda has a son my age, who I used to spend a lot of time with. I would tell my friends that Nick and I were really brother and sister, and we'd been separated at birth. But the true story is that I drove my mother crazy, so Glenda would come and get me in the summers to keep me alive, out of juvie, 
and hopefully not pregnant before I graduate high school. Should be pretty good. Two out of three in bed. <laughs> so, so Linda bought me my first set of brushes, my first set of oil paints, and gave me her books on introduction to toll painting. Do y'all know toll painting? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I painted everything that summer I was 12. There wasn't a piece of wood that was safe from having a cluster of wild strawberries and violets on it. <clears throat> I even painted a hen in a bonnet because there was a pattern. <laughs> she realized I needed more things to keep me busy, to keep me out of my mama's hair and out of trouble. So she taught me Sharon Schnitter. And that's true. That's a real thing. It's a German art of paper cutting. Later on, she bought me a nice pad of paper and an honest-to-God set of... of real ink pens and show me some pen and ink sketches. The small school I attended didn't have an art class, so if it hadn't been for her, I might not have realized that I could create anything. But once I painted on everything I could, pen and inked until I had calluses and cut up every piece of paper available, I found something else to keep me busy. Like so many kids with parents that have their own demons to tend to, I couldn't stay out of trouble too long. I didn't do drugs or shoplift or set buildings on fire. I got a boyfriend instead, one with a 71 Mach 1 Ford Mustang with pearl white paint and red leather interior, and he had his own apartment. So how was I supposed to not get into trouble? <laughs> Summer league softball wasn't enough physical activity, I guess. The girl on third had an older brother that could fill the void, no pun intended. <clears throat> there, there wasn't much to do in my hometown if you were a good girl that got bored easily, except premarital sex. So the summer of 1983 was a start of my demise. Soon after, I got pregnant and married before I turned 16, in that order. True story. I was married for 11 years to my first husband, and it was a nightmare, but I got a beautiful son out of it. Married my second husband too soon for the wrong reasons, and then my third husband, well, lots of reasons, but none of them the right one. And all that time, I was just trying to have a family, a real family, the kind with a husband and kids, a house, two dogs, and family vacations. I thought I was less of a person because I didn't have what matters most, proof that I mattered to someone. Fast forward, my son's in college. I'm alone, and I'm trying not to get into trouble. Working all the time, but not staying busy enough. When Glenda and I pick up where we left off, somehow she just knows when I need her. This time, she wants us to go to a little coffee shop near her house, get in on their open mic night, write songs, play guitar, even though neither one of us can play guitar or sing. And I'm right in. I'm all in. She changed my name to Mandolin and hers to Jessie, and we walked in the perfect half like we own the place. It was there we met up with the writers group, as a, a group of amazing people, seriously, and I started writing again. I hadn't written anything since my first marriage, except for children's stories for my son. Thanks to a boyfriend between husbands two and three, who, his words exactly, well, that's nice, doll. That's nice that you want to write, but seriously, who would ever publish you? You didn't even finish high school. But because of Linda, who never once treated me like white trash, or a high school dropout, or a teenage mother, not only was I a self-taught artist who paid for my son's books for school, and he was the first person on either side to graduate college, by the way, by selling my work at craft shows. While working full-time, I was also a published author. Me, a published author. I know that part sounds like complete bullshit, but it's true. <laughs> I'm not lying, even though it feels like it sometimes. When I tell you I've been published over 20 times, thanks to Glenda, I would never have joined a writer's group if not, if not for her. She always believed in me, even when I didn't. Fast forward six years after that. I won't go into the gory details, but I had my entire life just ripped right out from under me. And I had no idea what was happening until it was too late. My only son has completely erased me from his life. And it hits me that I'm three times divorced. I'm too old to start over. And it's just bad. I'll just leave it at that. I was just free falling when there's Linda. She always knows when I need her. She validated my feelings and she listened to me. She talked to me about, and more importantly, let me talk about, all the scary things that were going on, the thoughts that kept creeping into my head late at night that you don't need to keep to yourself. She talked to me about depression, about my history's, family's history of depression and suicide, about sugarcoating the situation, or trying to make me feel like it wasn't as bad as it was, because it is bad, and it might not ever get better, but it's not all there is, and I know that thanks to her. Now fast forward to the first of 2014. Glenda calls me with some really shitty news. She has cancer. And it's bad and curable, scary kind of bad. But she's Glenda, and she's still got stories to tell. We're planning a party soon because, well, you never know how much time you have. I might get hit by us tomorrow. It's my job to invite Lucinda Williams, Nick Cave, Jim White, you know, cool people. And we just want to hear their <laughs> stories, you know, just hang out. What? It could happen. That part could be true. I haven't said no yet. 
<laughs> and the latest story we're working on is from when Glenda's no longer around, whenever that might be, is that she isn't gone. She'll be having a rendezvous with Nick Cave. Not sure where they're going yet because we're still working out all the details. Because she ain't dying until she gets to have a fling with Nick. And if you know my cousin Glenda, you know that part's 100% truth. Yes. That was awesome. Man, everyone's so good tonight. Unfortunately, you have to listen to me next. Um, like I said, I wasn't planning on doing this tonight. Uh, we had a, another writer who got sick and backed out. Uh, a little background on this story. I worked at Victoria's Secret for a year. Um, it's a long story. Uh and I had, there are a lot of characters in that store, and um, two of them are in this story uh, named, I call them the Cougar and Cottontail. Um, <laughs> some people have heard this story before, I've told it, the first time I told it, my mom was in the room, so keep that in mind as you listen through this. Um, and she is a dentist, so I'm, I, you know, I didn't put two and two together until you got it, so she was like, oh, this is great, we've got a tooth story, and then I've got... My mom's story. This is really good. Um, genius. Uh, anyways. <clears throat> oh, shoot. The story is called uh, Here Comes Peter Cottontail. <clears throat> Take from that what you want. I wasn't expecting to do this, okay? You know what? I am gonna switch. I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna go forth because I can't get this story to come up. So um, while I'll, I'll be listening, I promise, Amanda. Um, anyways, Amanda's been on this. Uh, this is her third time on stage. I said, you know, this is the third time's the charm. She bombed the first two times. No, she, she did. A, she did a great job. She's very funny. Uh, her first story was about breastfeeding, and it was, it was. I've never thought about breastfeeding in that way until. She told it. I, I believe my favorite quote referred to waterfalls. It was like having waterfalls coming. It was, it was a lot. Um, anyway, she's a teacher. Um, and uh, the, the essay she's reading tonight was just in the Vodka Ionic. Um, it's fantastic. So let's welcome the stage, Miss Amanda Robinson. apartment in Nashville after leaving her friends and my father behind in New York. Our new neighbors, Jack and Barbara, were loud, friendly city folk who somehow felt familiar. Their presence softened the blow of the move, helping us transition into the South and into a town filled with strangers. Jack and Barbara quickly became my babysitters, and their dog, Reuben, became my playmate. I can't remember their last name now or even if they had children of their own, but they were deep into the age of grandparenting with me and at a time when I desperately needed it. I fondly remember their kindness, and I particularly remember Jack's stories. The accepted lore was that Jack had been struck by lightning three times. I say lore because that's completely ridiculous, and yet this guy was so charming and commanded such respect around the apartment complex that no one questioned it when he'd said things like, you know, I've been struck by lightning, so my sense of pain is substantially diminished. <laughs> or, the second time I was struck by lightning, there wasn't a tree in sight, so you just never know. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, he had been struck by lightning three times, and I believed everything else he said, too. My young single mother also willingly put herself under his tutelage. Jack taught me how to play all kinds of exotic board games, taught me how to use the steering wheel of a car, and how to teach a dog to eat from the table without anyone else seeing. But it wasn't all fun and games with Jack. He had an encyclopedic knowledge of all the potential horrors that could befall a child, and he made sure I stayed safe by telling me each of the ways that people were plotting the heinous demise of children <laughs> and how to steer clear of them. One memorable lesson happened at the apartment playground. 
where before allowing me to go down the slide, Jack checked the underside at the bottom and very matter-of-factly explained to me, Amanda, there are people who have hidden razors at the bottom of the slide so that children will cut their genitals on the way down. <laughs> now, I, at five, I wasn't exactly sure what the word genitals meant, but I got the picture. Terrified, I waited dutifully at the top until he told me the coast was clear, and it was. The only thing waiting for me at the bottom of that slide was the death of my carefree childhood. <laughs> but if I'd made it through the summer, perhaps I'd make it through Halloween as well. Because, of course, Halloween is a bubbling cauldron of potential tragedy. <laughs> According to Jack, razors were just the beginning of the wickedness being stuffed into so many plastic pumpkins. Drugs, poison, detergent. Chances are someone was trying to dump all of that into my goodie bag. After trick-or-treating with the other kids in my stifling, flammable Smurf costume, totally, you know, okay, not dangerous, I was forbidden to touch anything until my mother dumped every piece out into the living room floor and combed through my stash, deciding what was safe to eat. I'm seeing some nods, some other 80s babies out here. Anything that was homemade or had been removed from its original packaging was out. I watched as my mother tossed what looked to me like innocuous cellophane bags filled with treats right into the garbage. My mother's choices of what to take out of my stash were met by the occasional proving nod by Jack. She was learning well. <laughs> Meanwhile, I wondered who would take the time to bake for children who were perfect strangers. Ask Jack, and he'd say an evil witch, that's who. And we were all little Hansels and Gretels, perilously close to death because we wanted a little candy. I'm pretty sure I saw something closer to satisfaction than outrage on their faces when they, when they found something homemade, validation of their fears. Today, of course, parents don't have to look for the poison. We've decided it's the candy itself. The evil processed sugar was there all along. Thus, I protect my children, of course, by stealing most of their candy and eating it myself. Because <laughs> I'm an adult. Besides, I can find other things about Halloween on which to focus my, focus my anxieties, which I'm sure makes my mother and Jack proud. For example, what if the neighbor's children are festooned in more uniquely non-commercial costumes than mine are? Or what if my children want one of those huge inflatable spiders in the front yard? Gasp. And I'm already bracing myself for the inevitable. Or I was. When my four-year-old daughter asks me if she can be Elsa... If you haven't left your house in the last year, that's a character from the Disney movie Frozen. Um, the store is out of those, I'll lie. As I contemplate what brand of eyeliner would produce a fierce yet subtle unibrow, giving her an edge over the other preschool Frida Kahlo's. <laughs> <laughs> Charm. Oh man, I, I, I listened to like 20% of that because I was panicking because my Google Docs isn't working and I can't get my story up. But I, I heard the laughter, so I know that you did a good job. So great job. Um, isn't she awesome? Let's get up Anyways, they, they asked me beforehand if they wanted someone, if someone, if I wanted somebody to come up and introduce me beforehand, I said no. Most people know me here already. I uh, don't want to hear any more of my story. So, um, <laughs> but uh, if I had to say anything, I am the, the managing editor of a health and science website now called redorbit.com. It's really cool. Go check it out if you get a chance. I was obliquely referenced in Wired the other day, and it was really exciting. Um, yeah. yeah, I had I had written this, this story about a horse and a baboon in South Africa, like they're best friends. And so Wired was picking up like these weird animal stories, and they, they didn't say my name, but they ref they basically the the baboon the baboon uh, the baboons like hang out with the horses, they clean the horses, and I, watching the video, I was like, okay, I'm I'm not really sure what the horses are bringing to the table in this relationship. <laughs> so I wrote that in the the thing, and the guy on Wired was like. Um, in South Africa this week, horses and baboons have been seen getting along, which baffled one commentator who said, 
it, I'm not sure what the horse is bringing to the table in this relationship. So. <laughs> Wired! <laughs> they were like our biggest competition, so I was like, well, that was nice. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, so like I said before, I worked at Victoria's Secret. My mom's a dentist, and there are these two women who worked with me named, they, their real names weren't the Kruger and Cottontail, but uh, they, I called the one the Kruger. She was 42, dating a 28-year-old, and she refused to go by that title. Uh, she hated me when I said that, so I, I just kind of called her to annoy her. But she, I don't think she really is one. Uh, Cottontail, you'll, you'll find out why she's named Cottontail. <clears throat> Again, here comes Peter Cottontail. That's the name of the story. As a dentist, my mother has a tendency to see the world in terms of teeth. The model in the fashion magazine, the anchor on the local news, the butcher at the grocery store. Each of these loses any form of distinguishing characteristics upon opening their mouths. Wow, would you look at the teeth on that guy, she'll say, watching Brian Williams elaborate on a new bill passed in Congress. The news doesn't matter, nor does what he's wearing. A nuclear device could go off in Manhattan and he alert the nation wearing only a cowboy hat and nipple clamps, and she would have said the exact same thing. <laughs> Whoever did his veneers did an amazing job. I guess I can't really blame her, though. After spending 25 years looking into people's mouths, what else is she going to notice about them? It's the same way garbage men see the world in terms of trash, or proctologists see the world in terms of assholes. That subtle yet trying side effect of dedicating your life to a single pursuit. What made this difficult, however, was that as a family, we tended to watch a lot of television programs with British people in them. <laughs> I'm not talking about the Hugh Grant or Colin Firth kind of British people either. <laughs> oh, good reaction. These were the non-Hollywood types, the world's leading scholars on Elizabethan England or 18th century ballistics, whose teeth reinforce the theory that Stonehenge is not the ancient Druid burial ground we all know and love. <laughs> but the leading text in British orthodontics. <laughs> my mother looks at these people the same way a feminist might look at Howard Stern. Oh my God, she'll say. Oh, I can't even look at them, they're so bad. Oh my God, they're terrible. It's not that she's disgusted so much, it's more that she's offended, like a Republican, when you tell them you're not going to exercise your right to vote. <laughs> what do you mean you're not going to exercise your right to braces, I imagine her saying. And then she'll whip out a copy of the Declaration of Independence and point out the line that clearly states our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of orthodontia. <laughs> the thing that baffles me most about her dental fixation is the question of when. When did she go from seeing scholars for what they know to seeing them for what they obviously don't know about the advances in modern dentistry? <laughs> While it's hard to imagine her any other way, it's even harder to believe there was a distinct moment when the change occurred. That kind of thing only happens in movies or books, where characters move from innocence to knowledge with the ease it takes to walk from the living room to the kitchen. As God is my witness, I'll never go hungry again, they say brandishing their fists on top of a hill. If I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. It's just so hokey, all that drummed-up theatricality. No one actually does that in real life, especially not my mother. I thought of this as I walked into Victoria's Secret one night, the stockroom. I was checking on some panties for a customer when I heard the cougar call me from the manager's office. <laughs> Curious, I walked in and found her sitting there with Cottontail, both looking as if they had something on their minds. Close the door, said the cougar, and I did so rather excitedly. <laughs> These were good odds. <laughs> so Christopher, she said, before hesitating and turning towards Cottontail, you ask him, I don't want to ask him. Cottontail turned towards me. Do you like a girl who bleaches her butthole? <laughs> what? I said. A girl who bleaches her what? Bleaches her butthole, she repeated. You know, whitens her cottontail. She said this as if bleaches her butthole had been an old high school classmate of ours. Whose <laughs> real name I had forgotten, but the nickname would surely jog my memory. Bleaches her butthole, you know, whites her cottontail. Oh yeah, whites her cottontail. What's she up to? I've got to be honest. I said, I have never heard of this. 
Why would a girl even do that? Well, if your favorite position is doggy style, you might want everything to look nice and clean down there. Why don't you just learn to wipe properly? I said. She shook her head. No, because no matter how thorough you are, poo follicles build up over time, and you can't get rid of them. Follicles, I thought. This was a malapropism. She had meant to say particles, as follicles are small, spherical groups of cells containing a cavity. We most associate hair growth with follicles, an image that, when combined with feces, has the ability to cause mass suicide. (laughs) But I still don't get why a girl would do this, I said. Why don't you just buy some baby wipes, or take a shower, or if you're still having issues, just take some steel wool to it. She put her face in her hands. Realizing her logic wasn't getting her anywhere, she did what most people would do in this kind of situation. Appeal to a higher source. Well, porn stars bleach their buttholes all the time. Why do you think they look so good? I turned to the cougar for confirmation. What do I look like to you, she said. An expert on porn stars? In fact, she did look like an expert on porn stars. So I nodded my head. I am not, she exclaimed. What about me says I look like an expert on porn stars? Not wanting to stir the turd any further, and remembering that I was doing a check for a customer, I shrugged my shoulders and told Cottontail that no, I do not make it a requirement of my girlfriends to bleach their buttholes, but would certainly consider it in the future. She seemed pleased with this. That evening, I came home and did what most single men do when football's not on and there's nothing to eat. I made some popcorn, opened my laptop, and put on some porn. This was nothing special, just something I could get for free on the internet from YouPorn or PornTube or one of those post-it-yourself porn websites when your wife breaks up with you. Surprisingly, I found something good and was just getting into it when I noticed the girl had definitely not bleached her butthole. Oh my god, I said, dropping the lotion. That thing is terrible. Oh my god. Oh, I can't even look at it. It's so bad. And with that, I closed my laptop and pulled up my pants, trying to forget everything I'd just seen. I spent the rest of the evening this way, taking hot showers and imagining myself with Blake Lively. But none of it worked. None of it could overpower the image I now had burned into my head. As if the world I'd once known had given way to something completely foreign. A world where bleach is no longer exclusive to clothes and teeth. Uh, Peter Cottontail is a porn star. And I find myself thinking with regularity, as God is my witness, I'll never be horny again. As God is my witness. Thank you. And now for the best part of the show, because I keep forgetting the raffle giveaway. First, we're going to give away some... Wait, did everyone put in their raffle yeah, ticket, by the way? That's, I always forget to ask for that. Does anyone need to pee, by the way? We can take a moment. No? Oh, you, you do? You guys have some back there? Flomax, John. Flomax. you got to work. Oh, we're getting our final tickets. Oh, yes. Sorry, what we may win. Our first? Oh, yes. I have a bottle of bleach in my car for anybody who's interested. That's <clears throat> That story follows me around everywhere. All, all my friends who have heard that, that's like one of the first things they talk about when they introduce me. Like, oh, this guy's got a great story about like ble- butthole bleeding, uh, butthole bleaching. I'm like, okay. And, and this is getting riotous. I'm liking it. Is everyone, is everyone warm, cool? How are we doing? It feels nice up here now. It's just the... Anyways, uh, enough of me talking. Okay, so our next writer uh, is another Vodkionic. She just was published in October, if I remember. September. And I read it, and uh, and I knew that I was producing this show in November, and I said, I think I even tweeted about it. I said, you know, you guys need to read this. It's going to be in the November show. And thankfully, she did come out for the November show. Um, Anyways, uh, she's really fantastic. Kathy 
Do you want me to say your last name? Randall. Yeah. Okay, Kathy Randall, or uh, she's in the scene as Kate Burr, C-A-T-E-B-E-R-R. Um, she's a teacher at MTSU in Ball State in composition. She's also a teacher at the CCA prison, um, and she's a fantastic writer. So let's welcome her to stage, Miss Kathy <laughs> Randall. Dividing assets. This month, instead of celebrating our 29th wedding anniversary, reminiscing over romantic dinner, my husband and I sat in a deli booth dividing marital assets. Once we come to a settlement, we will join the likes of Al and Tipper Gore, Danny DeVito, and Rhea Perlman and the scores of other less famous couples who also divorced after decades of marriage. Reaction to the news from our close family and friends have varied. Surely after so many years you can work it out. But it, the pronoun for the list of reasons why we gave up, is hard to pinpoint. And there's that, what took you so long? This response lacks the understanding that hope sometimes dies hard and slowly. Even though it's been a long time coming, I still find myself shaking my head, wondering how the hell we got here. I know that I'm not alone in this existential crisis. While divorce rates in general have declined, these late-in-life divorces have doubled over the last two decades. In 2009, one in four divorces occurred among people 50 and older. And expert predi experts predict a 25% increase in the next 20 years. The trend is so pronounced it has a name, the Gray Divorce Revolution. Some poise that this upturn is due to the increased life expectancies or because the differences we could ignore or set aside while raising children become intolerable during the empty nest years. We fit into this category. In good company or not, dividing assets calls to mind my mother's death when my brothers and I squabbled over insignificant things, like her praying hands bookends, somehow having them lessen the loss of her. I noticed a similar reaction to this, pending separation while going over our lists. For example, one afternoon as I passed his door, I surveyed the bedroom I had moved out of months ago, but immediately noticed his sock door ajar a habit of his that annoyed me for years. As I reached out almost unconsciously to close it, I peeked inside. Before even thinking about it, I grabbed a pair of his socks and moved them to my dresser in the room down the hall. His socks fit me better than any woman's sock I've ever had. Men's socks are longer and wider, perfectly encasing my size 10 feet. His entire dresser drawer of socks has been under joint ownership for over 30 years now, if you count the courtship days. He has at least 20 pair, so I'm assuming he'll never even notice these wool, heather-colored ones. They are my favorite, and I've missed them. What else could I do but steal them? <laughs> if he knew I did this, he might mistake it as some kind of sentimental attachment to him. Like back in the day when I wore his shirts, not only so I could smell the scent of him, but to announce in a somehow primal, territorial way to all his previous girlfriends that I was the girlfriend now. I remember how those girls looked at me like I was just the flavor of the month. They thought we would not last, but we did. Wearing his clothes and using his bathrobe familiarized me with what men have and how they use it. Before him, I was rather innocent, even ignorant about underthings and men's sizing. Surprisingly, men's socks are of better quality, like those boxer briefs I suggested, he suggested I use on one of our vacations to Florida when I got a second-degree sunburn. Those briefs were the most comfortable underwear <laughs> I have ever worn, which makes me want to sneak a pair of those to put in the emergency medical kit just in case. <laughs> Once borrowing a t-shirt or a pair of jeans meant we belonged together, that we fit. Today, his socks just mean comfy feet. Socks are easier to hide than a robe. He would notice the robe missing. Besides, the ugly blue teary cloth one I was so fond of was thrown away long ago. I have my own robe now. 
I will take better care of these socks than he would. Carelessly, thoughtlessly, he left his socks elsewhere a few times. I intuitively knew when they went missing. And I know these socks are clean because I've washed them, like I've washed all his things all these years. Wearing his clothes, doing his laundry, once felt like a privilege, like watching him sleep, all the while wondering how could I be so lucky to share his bed. These privileges, these tasks, they're not mine anymore. I wonder how long it will be before I will feel unmarried. So as far as I see it, these socks are mine because I've earned them. When I signed the complaint papers, which made this all stark and definite, I realized that I'd been, I've had free access to these masculine advantages all these years, and perhaps I've taken them for granted. Stealing his socks is a matter of practicality, really. I'm just taking my fair share of the marital assets. And as the rumors start to circulate about our separation, people will feel triangulated and divided into camps. He's the likable one. He'll get all the friends in the divorce, but I'm keeping the dance songs. <laughs> I really like boxer briefs too. They just Briefs are, they're just too too tight, and the boxes are just too free, and it's like, this this country is built on compromise, and I think underwear should be as well. Um, I'll consider uh, letting Victoria's Secret know that they need a line of boxer brief yes. panties. Yeah. Lace, or just cotton? Cotton. Cotton, yeah. I don't have any questions. Yeah. <laughs> that brings to mind a time uh, I was helping a customer... And um, I was showing her, we had this, this new kind of panty called the Naked Panty, and it was made out of the lightest fabric in the world, so you felt, well, naked when you wore it. Um, and she said to me, I, I think, I forget what kind I showed her, if it was thong or if it was just normal, like, hip hugger, and she said, I can't wear those after my hysterectomy. They it just nothing's comfortable unless it's and I can't remember which one she said what kind it was but it was like a very specific panty in the store and it was like it was the first time it was like very early when I was there and now it's very awkward so um, but it was just thanks for that laugh what was that <laughs> anyways um, yeah no that was a different customer. <laughs> Thank you, Melody. I, uh, I had another customer who, um, she was returning all these panties that her mom had gotten her. I said, what's wrong with them? Because that was what we had to ask every time something. And she said, nothing, just all the underwear here gets stuck in my butt. And I was like, okay then. Um, a lot of awkward stuff with that. Next up, Mr. John Levy. He, uh, John gave me a great job this past year. I was working for smallbusiness.com for a while at the offices of Hammock Incorporated, which is just down here on Church. Um, they are a marketing company. How you, is that how you describe yourself? Publishing marketing company. They do a lot of stuff with healthcare, and actually they do the newsletter. My girlfriend works for Sarah Cannon, and they do the newsletter for her. Um, anyways, John's... Uh, the last time John performed, and he told me this in confidence, so, um, the last time he performed was 1979, um, he was doing the hustle to Michael Jackson's Off the Wall, is that what you said? Rock. Rock with you? Yeah, that was a good one. Um, so that was the last time he performed, and this is, uh, so it's, it's what, been almost 50, 25, 35 years now? Thirty-five years. Welcome back to the stage. All right. Welcome back to the stage, John Levy. Thanks, kind of revealing that all the women just dove right in, but Chris and I need a little intro for ourselves. I wrote this, the reason I wanted to, I wrote this 14 years ago, and he just told you how he worked for me. 
So basically, this is a total nepotism job that I'm actually <laughs> up here. I was trying to get hired, but they wouldn't hire me. Well, and I waited to accept this until he started his new job. So, <laughs> so I felt morally okay about it. But um, I wrote this uh, 14 years ago and uh, showed it to Chris because he talked about this uh, theme being about family. Uh, and, and this woman I'm married to is in the audience, Hannah, is out there. And uh, the girl that I talk about in here, my daughter, my oldest daughter, is turning 15 next month. Um, so I was worried that I wasn't really connected to this material anymore because the way this originated, this story originated, was 14 years ago, I was running with my friend uh, Adam Ross, who is actually a novelist of some repute now. He was the editor at the scene, and I was complaining about having a new baby. And so he encouraged me to explore this a little bit and to be honest about it, and that's what I tried to do. Um, so when Chris encouraged me to get up here and do this, I went to see this a couple of months ago. I agreed to do it, um, but I wanted to sort of update the material on the front end to say, you know, 14 years later, so I have a 13-year-old, I've been married almost 20 years, I have a 13-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old daughter, or soon-to-be 15-year-old daughter. And the only thing that's really changed over that time is I figured out that I'm only slightly less self-centered than I was 14 years ago. <laughs> and in all truth, parenting gets less physically challenging, but infinitely more complex sort of mentally. And that kids, darling children, are still the ultimate cock blockers. <laughs> So this is a story I wrote called Heaven and Hell, which was published in the scene, and it was called uh, Marriage with Baby. And I talked to my mother last night, and she reminded me there was a picture of me lying prone on my bed with my glasses, and I was just, you know, wiped out. So this is Heaven and Hell. Um, <clears throat> early parenthood, specifically the first three months of child rearing, is an extended sleep deprivation experiment. Everybody who has a ch had a child knows this, and before you have your baby, most parents will warn you about this. But it really can't be overstated. If you're lucky, you'll just walk around with a thousand-yard stare. If your child has colic, you may be privy to visions of the white buffalo. <laughs> Quite honestly, I'm not even really tremendously qualified to write this or read this, because after the birth of our daughter Frances, I have a really sketchy memory of the whole experience. Of course, there are rewards from losing all that sleep, and that was sacrificing delicious, easy sleep with spending time with my daughter, precious time. And I remember crawling out of bed two in the morning to try to get her to fall back to sleep, and it was it was like a sacred time for me. As the moonlight sort of poured through the window, I was holding her tiny, warm body against my chest, and and for those of you who know, that sort of feels something connected to something divine. But in the interest of full disclosure, that moonlit scenario only actually happened twice. <laughs> I subsequently learned to feign heavy sleep while my wife lurched out of bed to comfort our squalling child. And from what she tells me, the moments were less sublime than my happy recollections. <laughs> And the truth is, all the wonderful things aside about having a child, the dirty little secret about having a baby is that it can be more than a little trying on your relationship with your spouse. But how, how could it be easy? Um, for us, for two years of dating and five years of marriage before a baby, my wife and I spent a year traveling together. We caught movies when they first came out. We could leave town on a moment's notice. Sometimes we didn't do anything for hours on end by choice. We had the freedom to throw ourselves into our work and play. I ran a marathon and started going to school at night. Hannah started a company. We had an affectionate, well-exercised dog. <laughs> One darling daughter later and everything changed. Frances was born in December and doctors told us not to take her to public places for the first few months for fear of illness. So we changed our set schedule so our entire lives revolved around a creature that weighed less than a ham. <laughs> More beautiful, of course, but far louder. 
And then after the excitement of the birth passes, your friends disappear, family members return home, and the routine of baby care seems to never end. The hours of doing nothing but tending to the baby accumulated, and the walls of the house started closing in on both of us. My wife and I began to argue about things like how little I was involved in the whole process. Occasionally still happens. Um, I pleaded work and school. On the days I came home energized and ready to spend time with my wife and daughter, she handed the baby off to me and demanded I take her somewhere, anywhere, even if it was just for a half hour. We ate meals and shifts, and by the time we had some time to ourselves, we'd stare at each other, too tired to do much more than share a couple of stories about our daughter and then fall asleep. I stopped running because I was too tired to get up in the morning before work. Our dog grew fat and sullen. <laughs> Although I adored my daughter, there were times really when I wanted my old life back. During the first few months, it didn't seem like relief was in sight. To the outside world, we may have seemed fine. And my wife worried constantly whether she was going to be a good mother and how she could possibly balance all the things in her life she had managed before. I felt like Steve McQueen in Papillon after he gets out of solitary confinement, <laughs> babbling, nervous, and pale. And on top of it all, I felt guilty because I knew that all things considered, we were damn fortunate. Our child was healthy and happy. She wasn't as good a sleeper as some, but she wasn't much worse than others. And frankly, how selfish do you have to be to complain about a baby disrupting your lifestyle? To say the least, the first few months forced my wife and I to redefine our relationship on a whole new set of terms. And the terms were slightly more favorable than those offered to the Japanese at the end of World War II. <laughs> you don't think so? Take away stretches of uninterrupted time with one another, social outlets, travel, good sleep, good meals, and where does that leave you? Prison without the sex. <laughs> In the interest of reclaiming portions of our life back, we did what any salt of a parent would tell you to do. Get out of the house together without the baby. So my sister-in-law visited us one snowy weekend when Francis was two months old. My wife peeled our daughter off her breast just to top her off so we could extend our recess. And we walked out the door to a very forgettable lunch at an Italian restaurant in Green Hills. <clears throat> Carabas. Um, <laughs> at the restaurant, Hannah and I challenged each other to talk about something other than the baby, if only for the exercise of it. We mostly stared at the cell phone lying on the table to make sure we didn't miss a call. A couple of beers and some bad calamari later, we are having the kind of date that doesn't prompt a follow-up if you're not already married. <laughs> it was really awkward. At the same time, it was kind of nice to be off the clock for a few hours. And after that, the dates got a little easier, a little more frequent. We found a babysitter who told us to go out and have fun and stay out till 2 in the morning if we wanted to. Sometime around the three-month marks, things suddenly seemed a little bit more manageable with our lives. We were in a new phase of life because Frances was entering a new phase of her own. And maybe as a reminder for me to take things a little less seriously, my daughter started to belly laugh. If no sleep is bad, belly laughing is very good. I focused on whatever it took to make her sleep or to make her laugh. The latter has proved far easier. It's not true anymore. She actually is a lot easier to go to sleep now than laughing. <laughs> But inevitably, we run into parents who tell us how much they miss those first few months and having a baby. Sweet, dumb people. <laughs> they can't remember how difficult it was. And, but I know exactly what they mean, because I've, I've almost forgotten how difficult it was, too. And I've adopted all the trite thoughts that people told me before she was born. Your life is never the same after your child is born. There's nothing quite like having a kid. It's the most wonderful and challenging thing you could experience. Something like that. Welcome back, John Levy. Can we get the hustle real quick? Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I know how it. to do that. <laughs> 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 anyway, folks, thank you very much for coming out tonight. Have a safe drive home. We'll see you in January. Uh, we're taking December off. It's Christmas. Okay. Yeah. Have a great one. Thanks for being out. Great job, Golden. Now you heard, go spread the word. They're funny, smart, and so absurd. Happens every month. It's the neatest storytelling.